0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 85 of The Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we have a first this episode. We are actually not sitting in the same room together.
1: We're not even in the same state.
0: We're not. This is a first. We do not plan to make a habit of it. (laughs) (laughs) But I am traveling for work. And so um, work got in the way of my cougar time with my cougar buddy. But we were unwilling to give it up completely, so we decided that we would Skype in together. So here we are. And, thank um, you, Skype. Yes, really. We're so lucky in this age we live in to be able to do things like this,
1: yeah, I, this would have seemed like magic when we were in grade school.
0: It still seems like magic to me, frankly, but I'm,
1: I'm just glad I know how to push the right buttons. so <laughs> <laughs>
0: So before we get started into our regular segments, we just wanted to remind everybody that we do have an upcoming read-along. We'll be reading Free
1: Food for Millionaires by Min Jin Lee.
0: Right. And we're going to have a conversation with Min, which is so exciting. And we will be talking to her on October 30th. We're going to open up a Goodreads dialogue on October
1: 1st. We'll break it down into different sections so people can read along and discuss without boilers of things later on in the book. And please feel
0: free, if there are any questions you want us to ask, men to put it, you know, note it in on the Goodreads conversation, or you can reach out to us via our email, bookcougars at gmail.com, or on any of our various social media platforms.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I have both the paperback copy of Free Food for Millionaires, and I have an, a digital copy.
0: Oh, that's great. And I think I'm going to get the audio. My sister was telling me she listened to the audio and it was great.
1: That's cool.
0: So I'm going to do all versions, all manner, as they say.
1: Nice. So what are you currently reading, Chris? I'm currently reading The Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. I'm not going to say much about it other than I'm really enjoying it. And then I'm also reading, I guess it's a it's either a long, short story, novella. I'm not 100% sure. It's by Lisa Unger. I've never read anything by her. The Sleep Tight Motel is the name of this story. What a great title. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's from the Dark Corners series, which is seven stories by various writers uh, that are on the creepy side. I don't know the other preparing for Halloween
0: is what you're doing. You know what
1: I am. There is a reading challenge that happens from September first through October thirty first called Readers Imbibing Peril, and this is the fourteenth year that they're doing this, and it's designed just to bring readers together who are into you know, mystery, dark stories, horror, gothic, spooktacular type stories. And I've I've done it a couple, I've been aware of it for a couple years. I think last year I officially participated and I'm using air quotes on that because I'm notorious for loving to make lists of books and sign up for challenges. And then, you know, I'm lucky if I can get one or two of them in, but it's always fun. I love reading gothic scary stories this time of the year but I tend to not start that until October okay but I am starting a little bit earlier this year just because I know I'll be reading free food for millionaires right and I don't want to miss out on my creepy reading and it is feeling a little bit more like fall this year at this date it's September 13th you're lucky because in Ohio it's over 90 degrees
0: oh so I'm wearing it's not feeling fall here. I'm wearing jeans right now. It's nice. <laughs> Isn't that nice? I love that feeling of putting your long pants on after yeah. a hot summer.
1: Yeah, I feel like a big girl. Yeah. Um yeah, so those are the two things I'm currently reading. How about you?
0: I'm reading a memoir called Burn the Place by Ileana Reagan, or maybe it's Regan. This was actually one that Russell handed me, our buddy Russell, at Book Expo because it's a cooking memoir and Ileana Regan owns a Michelin starred restaurant called Elizabeth in Chicago. And this memoir is a coming of age story. It's actually a coming out story, which I didn't realize. And also um, it's about place quite a bit of, it's about place. She was raised in the Midwest in Indiana kind of had a slightly tough upbringing But there was this farmhouse in her family that was really important to her. And as she started writing this memoir, she didn't realize how important that farmhouse was to her life and to her cooking life. Yeah. So I'm not that far into it. I'm enjoying it. There are some incredible food scenes, but I have to say it's more about her coming out, becoming aware of who she was as a young woman being attracted to other women and not really having much modeling for that in her life. So she didn't really understand it. Mm -hmm. So, so thank you to Russell. I probably would have never found this book. I'm going to show you the cover too. It's got a really cool cover of Chanterelle mushrooms.
1: Oh yeah. Look at that.
0: It's really beautiful. So more to come when I finish it, which I hope to do on the airplane ride home. It's called burn the place by Ileana Regan. And then I'm also reading a book, which I left at home, because it is a chunkster, and I got it from the library in hardcover, and it's called The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. How's that going? Oh, it is, it's a good book, but it's hard. It it goes back and forth in time between the 80s and the beginning of the AIDS epidemic in Chicago, and the main character there is Yale, who is a dire- development director for a um, an art museum, and then Fiona. Who is the sister of Nico, who is a, a friend of Yale's who dies from AIDS. And then the other part of the book is in Current Day, where Fiona is in Paris looking for her daughter who has gone missing. The stories are obviously intertwined between past and present. It, it's quite heavy, though. And mm-hmm. so I, and I mean, Literally and figuratively. (laughs) So I didn't want to bring it on the plane with me. And also I just thought, oh, I don't think I can keep reading this one while I'm doing a bunch of, you know, heavy thinking. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to it when I get home next week.
1: So what have you just read?
0: I finished that book I talked about on the last episode, The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna by Juliet Grames. This is one our buddy Alyssa from Savoy and Bank Square recommended to us uh, when we had her on an episode when we were all together at Book Expo. What was really fascinating about this book, it's a work of fiction. It's There's a narrator telling the story. And I think I mentioned on the last episode, I wasn't really sure who the narrator was. Well, this book is 464 pages and the narrator's not revealed until the mid 300s.
1: Interesting. Yeah,
0: it was very interesting. And you kind of have an idea, you know, like it's a family member or something. But I thought that was just a really interesting aspect to the book. But the conceit of the book is that it's about two elderly sisters who were born and raised in a very rural village in Italy And they're estranged as elderly sisters. So the book goes back and forth in time. And when they're young girls being raised in Italy, they're inseparable. But yet, you know, because it's been revealed to you early in the book that they are kind of Arch enemies at this point, I should that's going a little too far. They just won't speak to each other. But yet they live across the street from each other. And so what happens throughout the course of the book, and it is a really long book, it's almost 500 pages, like I said, they end up um, moving to America right at the cusp of World War Two. And so it really speaks to that immigrant experience of being from, you know, an Italian family and moving to the states and how difficult that is to find your way. And ironically, they end up living in Hartford, Connecticut. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was really interesting, but but it's it's really a much more complex story than I expected because it also deals with the main character Stella desperately does not want to get married. But yet she comes from this Italian family where family is everything and it's revered and it's the expectation. And so I found the book quite sad because she does, spoiler alert, she does end up getting married. And she does end up having a bunch of kids and doesn't necessarily live the life that she set out to live. Mm -hmm. Um, so So it's about female independence also. And I also found it sad because there is some abuse of women in the book you know, her mother doesn't live the best life, in my opinion, which is my judgment on it. But, you know, it was hard to be an immigrant woman. And it, it, it made me also realize how lucky we are as women to have some of the rights that we have today. Yeah, you know, I really felt that I was I was reading this book, and that it was our immigrant relatives who made that happen for us in large part. Absolutely. paved the way. And so obviously, it has some application To today's world, you know, what's happening with the immigrant populations that are coming to our country now in their experiences, which are obviously different, but they still are having an immigrant experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They're still bringing one world into another world and have feet in different cultures. And how do they work both of those To live the life that makes them happy now or that they're able to live. I think for those first generations, living a life that makes you happy is not so much the point as living a life that is more manageable and survivable than whatever it is you were leaving
0: Right. Exactly. I mean, some of what people are, they're fleeing things and that's why they're here Mm -hmm. versus people who choose to come here. But I think were you and I talking about this also, though, what part of the difference in being an immigrant today is the access you do have to some of your family. Was that a discussion you and I were having? No, that's a discussion. I'm sorry. I was having that discussion with my sister how different it is for immigrants coming today because you do, I mean, look, we're a perfect example right now of this conversation we're having over Skype, that you can, in a lot of times, have more contact with the people that you're leaving behind. Not always. That's a kind of a privileged attitude to be thinking about it that way. But that some people who have fled, particularly during wartime, leave family behind that they never get to have any communication with ever again.
1: Absolutely. And yeah, that happened back then. It happens now. Uh, You know, I remember when I was a little kid, my mom communicated mostly with family back in Germany via letters. Right. And even that we used you know, airmail letters and airmail paper, the really thin stuff. And you crammed as much as you could because you didn't want extra postage. And then phone calls were few and far between. I think it was like in the late 80s or early 90s when phone service just changed and it was no longer such a hardship to to make long distance calls. And now it's ridiculous. You have stuff like WhatsApp where you can talk to people overseas and it's free. So the world has definitely changed. And I think, is it twenty. 25 or 2040 one of those dates stick in my head as the dates when most of the world will have access to mobile technology so uh, i heard an interesting conversation recently about how um for you know people in the united states of a certain class who were fortunate enough to have desktop computers we had a desktop computer and then we went to laptop computers and now a lot of people just rely on a smartphone. Whereas people in developing countries, p- countries that are just now getting uh, more technology in the hands of their citizens, they're skipping the desktop and the laptop quite often. And it's all about the phone. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just how that is really changing the world. Yeah. And for the, for the immigrant population, I just can't imagine how much of a relief it can be to have that access, but then how frustrating it can be if you don't we yes. you know it's available.
0: That's a really good point. Yeah. So much to think about. And this book definitely gave me a lot to think about. Again, The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna by Juliet Grames. It is a debut novel, um, very impressive debut novel. What so, did you just
1: read? Well, I the novel I finished most recently is The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. I think in our last episode, I mentioned that I was, uh, I was just going to read a couple chapters just to kind of get a flavor for her writing in the book, because we were going to see her, Madeline Miller at an event. And I completely got sucked into the book. And I did read the whole thing. I read it probably in just like three sittings, I think. And I probably, if I had had the time to just sit and read, I probably could have finished it in one sitting. It was, um, it just and a lot of people think that they need to know mythology to read her her novels. I think you we talked about that. I'm, I'm in the raising episode. my hand right now. Yeah. Yes, I definitely and thought you, that. And you really don't, especially with the Song of Achilles, because it starts off as a story of a young boy. He's nine, who is exiled from his land because he he's exiled. Let me just say that. And he eventually becomes friends with a boy who is the prince and he becomes his companion and eventually they become lovers it's the story of achilles and I'm, i don't know how to pronounce his name patrocles you know what let me look it up here and see if we can get a pronunciation cuz i did ask patroclus do you hear that patroclus patroclus, patroclus. okay so patroclus is Patroclus. Okay, okay, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. There we go. Patroclus. Oh my God, she wants to talk. (laughs) Okay, so Patroclus is Achilles' companion. And he's the narrator of the story. And for those of you who don't know Greek mythology, and again, you do not need to know Greek mythology, Achilles is the most famous, most capable warrior of the Greeks. But here he is, we're meeting him as a young man, and he's his training happens behind the scenes, away from the other troops being trained. Because as his father says, I believe it's his father, he's such an elegant, powerful warrior that for the other troops to see him training would just be so disheartening. to see that much skill which I thought was an interesting uh, take on that so it is about their relationship and Achilles you know his destiny his fate is to be this great warrior but we're talking about his death as well because Mm -hmm. there there are different prophecies and he is going to die. And so it's trying to fight against that a little bit. Wow. And what you can do and what you can't do. I I just loved it. It's about the Siege of Troy. I'm all over the place with this book. I realize I'm not being very eloquent about it. Uh mainly because I'm just really excited about it. But at its basic, it's a story of two friends who become lovers. And then you then you have the bigger picture of Greek mythology. We'll talk more about it when we get to our Biblio Adventures and we talk about Madeline Miller's event. So I will just stop talking about it for now. Well,
0: I think that's a great segue into our Biblio Adventures.
1: All right. Yeah, so Biblio Adventures. We went to see Madeline Miller at R.J. Julia in Madison, Connecticut. It was a great event. It was a packed house. Oh, it was so crowded. Our buddy Kate came up with her sister-in-law, Barbara. And Sally, another Connecticut book person, came up from Westport and joined us. So we had a fun dinner beforehand and then really a great event. I should point out, Sally is the one who is trying to read all of the translations of The Odyssey that she can. She's really into the classics. That's what she studied in graduate school. She's also Greek and goes to Greece. So she's way into the Odyssey. She is a fan of Madeline Miller, even though they don't always have agreement on certain things, as we witnessed during the event (laughs) when Sally was like, I'm sorry, I disagree with that. It was great. (laughs) Yeah, it was. um, It was fun. it, It was. It was fun. It was
0: nice to see two intelligent women having a conversation about Frankly, a bunch of shit I don't understand, but I'm glad that they do. So we should
1: back up. Oh, go ahead. We should back up and say that that was just about interpretations of women's status in ancient Greek culture. So that's
0: admittedly not something I spend a lot of time thinking about, (laughs) but I'm glad that there are people who do. Yes. And particularly Madeline Miller, the author. I mean, what an incredibly engaging human being
1: absolutely she is so friggin smart and so funny hilarious like she could be like a stand-up comedian of like ancient greek mythology yes uh, which are two things you wouldn't put together but i she had everybody laughing and thinking deeply it was a wonderful event and she read a piece of um she was there to talk about cersei Her second novel.
0: Yeah, right. Which is a huge, huge bestseller. And she read a piece and it was like performance. I mean, she I should say she performed a part of the book.
1: Yeah.
0: And for those of you who don't know, I didn't know. So don't feel badly about yourself. (laughs) Cersei is the the
1: goddess, right? Is that the right way to say it? The goddess. Was she a goddess? She was a half. She was a self-made goddess. Okay. I believe. I don't think she was born that way. She created herself that way using magic. So she, oh, go ahead. I think as you were going to say, she's known as the first witch of the Western literary canon or tradition.
0: And she's also known because she would turn men into pigs. Yes.
1: Yeah, so there is a scene in the Odyssey where she turns uh, Odysseus and his men into pigs, And that is the scene that she read so beautifully.
0: It was hilarious. She is very funny. She's brilliant. She is a high school teacher. It made me want to go back to high school. And I'm telling you, there's not much that makes me want to go back to high school. (laughs) But those students are sure lucky to have her. Yeah. What a talent and what a brilliant human being and what an interesting and engaged human being. And she also must have gone to an incredible school because she talks about how By high school, she was with an English teacher who
1: she was studying ancient Greek with. Right, yeah, her Latin teacher. She's taking Latin, and when he found out how passionately she cared for the classics, he said, "Well, I can teach you ancient Greek if you're interested." And she's like, "Yeah." So, (laughs) (laughs) what a thrill! And all of this started because her mother read her Greek mythology when she was like, I think five or six is when. She started reading it and <laughs> Madeline Miller said, my mother kind of cringes because she, now she doesn't think that's the, the greatest thing, but obviously she knew her daughter and that her right. daughter would love those stories because, you know, Greek mythology, like much like the Bible, there's a lot of really bad behavior. Right. It goes on right. A lot of murder, <laughs> and rape and incest. And so. sometimes
0: as parents, we make interesting choices. But in this case, it definitely paid off because she instilled in her daughter, you know, an incredible love that she carries with her till today. I mean, she went and pursued an undergraduate degree, a master's degree and a Ph.D. Um, And she's quite the expert, you know, in Greek mythology. She's read all various interpretations of the mythologies. And I think what I what my takeaway from the event was, Chris, I don't know if you would agree with me on this, is that. In, do, in becoming such a scholar, she also had quite a bit of, I'm not sure if concern's the right word, or just she she had some issues with how women were treated in the Greek mythologies. And so she wanted to take the, the opportunity in her fiction to explore that mm-hmm. and take it a bit further in a really fictionalized way,
1: right? Right, yeah, because one of the questions was how did she become a writer And Madeline Miller said, you know, when she was, you know, she, here she is, she's a scholar. And she said, here I had my study and research on ancient mythology. But while she was doing her studies, she was reading popular literary fiction by women writers. Right. And she just thought that the two just were different parts of her. Until one day, I don't remember, did she talk about exactly what prompted her? One day, she realized that she knew things about Achilles and oh my gosh, Patrocles, Patrocles. I remember (laughs) Patrocles. Patrocles. You know, she realized things. (laughs) Sorry, she realized things that she couldn't prove, but she felt things, and that's why she started writing the story. So while she's in school, she's writing this novel that eventually becomes the Song of Achilles. She gets the book deal. The book, I think, is, you know, they're going to start talking about it soon. And she calls her advisor and she says, I just wanted to let you know that I wrote a novel about Achilles and Petrocles. Why does it not stick in my brain? I just wanted to let you know that I wrote this novel. And there it is. And he said to her, that's great. I just really hope you made them lovers. And she's like, I did. So <laughs> because that's, I've heard other writers talk about this before, one of them being a a biographer, a scholar on Abraham Lincoln, who said, you know, as somebody who studies a historical figure, or in this case, a literary figure, so deeply, like there are things you feel and you know, but you can't prove. You don't right. have textual documentation to prove it. So writing a novel is a great way to Get that out there, and imagine what it was like. And I have to say, in the Song of Achilles, I haven't read I haven't read Circe yet, but I definitely want to. But in the Song of Achilles, it's not until like maybe midway through the novel that they're on their ships heading to Troy to try and you know get Helen back. And I thought, oh, I'm not I'm not looking forward to this whole you know ten year siege of Troy. I just wasn't up for big battle scenes or anything like that. But wow, this that section of the book flows just as well as the first section of the book because it's not just battle after battle after battle. Um, there, there are relationships that are being built with, with one of the women who is an enslaved captive. Mm. Um, there's interpersonal conflicts between like Agamemnon and Achilles, she brings all these characters to life, and you don't know who you don't need to know who they are again. You'll know who they are as you're reading, and it will give you some familiarity with with Greek mythology. So if you did want to go and read, say, the Iliad or the Odyssey, I think you'd you'd have a lot of fun doing that. That's
0: great, yeah, it was a great night. I'm very glad that I went. I don't know that I will read any of her books just because I know nothing about the Greek mythologies, and I know everyone says you don't need to, but it seems like it would make them, the books a little bit more enjoyable. But may, I was thinking maybe I would try one on audio, but I'm very glad yeah. that you read
1: it. I, I would say, and um, Sally Allen, our friend who's read both of them, she did recommend people start with the Song of Achilles because it is a little, it's more accessible because mm. it's a story about a guy and then another guy and it kind of builds on that. You don't need to know that. She said, um, with Cersei though, a little bit, it kind of jumps right into this world of adults. Which mm-hmm. might be a little bit more challenging, um, but I do look forward to reading Circe, um, hopefully this winter. And I do want to say, this is one of those moments where, so I read the Song of Achilles. Then the next novel I'm reading is the Song of Solomon. Mm-hmm. And in the Song of Solomon is a character named Circe. Oh, wow. <laughs> so huh. you know, wow, I love it when that happens. When yes. you have that cross-pollination that may or may not be real, but that yeah. is in a book. cool go ahead you had another biblio adventure I did tell me about it
0: I well with your inspiration I took the gentleman caller because he had a day off to the mystic seaport museum so that we could see some of the things you highlighted in episode 84 and I had never been there I've driven past it so many times it was so much fun. We had a great day. One of the things, you know, I didn't want to talk about it too much since Chris has, had already talked about it. But we did take a gander at the um, American Seaman Friends Society. Hat used to have these reading rooms for sailors. And there's, so there's a reading room uh, at Mystic. And the way the museum works is there's a lot of, as Chris said, indoor and outdoor. But it's kind of set up as the old village so they have people in there role playing as if you know it's still in a time where the sailors are getting off their ships, and so there's a grocery store and a pharmacy and things like that, and it's really cool because they have it set up in the old way. So this it is. Is like yeah, that. it's like
1: set up to be a 19th century fishing village.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. which I
1: don't think I explained that very well in our last episode, but it's this little fishing village. Well, little. It is pretty yeah, large. It's, it's I, big. Yeah. yeah. And so um, so
0: we stopped in the reading room. I took a little gander. The the American Seaman Friends Society established these reading rooms to try to keep sailors away from booze and ladies, basically, <laughs> by, by doing lectures and readings and providing them with reading materials and things like that. So I thought that was kind of fun. And then okay, two days later, we decided to go back and get on the water and we paddled the mystic river and we could paddle up to all the boats that are um, sitting at the mystic seaport museum that was really cool and they had the day before so the day between that we were visiting the museum and then paddling they had put the mayflower 2 in the water so that was really cool so we paddled right up to the mayflower 2 and got to see it so that's
1: great and so for for those of you who haven't listened to episode 84 Mayflower 2 is a historic replica of the Mayflower ship that the Pilgrims came over on and landed in Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts. It's been in Mystic undergoing a 3-year renovation and it just it just launched, right? It's heading back to Massachusetts, it's home, I believe. No, actually that's yeah, my understanding also. It's not they're putting it in the water and then it
0: doesn't go for another it doesn't go back to Plymouth until 2020. Oh, well wow. so I, I think didn't realize this is, that. they, they huh. put it in the water and make it water um, ready and they have more work to do on it. So that oh, was a surprise okay. to me. Like I thought the whole big pomp and circumstance that day was like bon voyage and off it went, but that's not the
1: case. It's still
0: there for quite some time. Okay. Yeah.
1: All right. Yeah. Well, it, it is a it is a great place to visit. Yeah, I highly recommend it. it. Lots Super of fun. great historic ships to see of all different kinds. Yeah. Yeah, they had an oyster ship. They have, oh, I should say, oyster boats. Yes, it is a a schooner, I believe, a fire boat, a viking
0: ship. I loved that one, that was
1: really cool. A steamship.
0: And then the other biblio adventure I had was to go to the movies and see Where'd You Go, Bernadette. Well, how was that? It was not very good. Uh I was disappointed. It's um, based on the book of the same name by Maria Semple. It stars Kate Blanchett, and I thought her performance was fine. But the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, wow, I really don't remember this book very well, which could be true. I mean, I I definitely have a hard time remembering books, especially if I read them quite some time ago. But I just thought that the director took a lot of artistic license with the story, and I really couldn't follow it very well. And I wondered for people who had read the book and hadn't read the book. You know, you always kind of wonder that when you're watching a movie based on a novel. And then I went with our buddy Emily and I turned to her afterwards and I was. she looked at me and she said, I don't remember the book being like that at all. <laughs> that made me feel so much better because I kind of thought I was losing my mind. So I thought the acting was fine. I thought the filming was interesting because it's filmed in the Pacific Northwest and then in Antarctica, which was kind of cool. There's all these glaciers and stuff like that, but I can't recommend it really. I oh, okay. have to say I didn't, I didn't really find it that enjoyable. So
1: all right. sorry all
0: right. to say that, but it's true.
1: Well, I had a adventure. I went to Marist college, which is in Poughkeepsie, New York. Um, my mm-hmm. wife, Laura had a reading of one of her plays there. And while the actors and she were in rehearsal I went to the library, the James A. Cannavino Library there on campus and just had a browse. It was fun to just go through the literary section and look at different books, you know, explored other areas of the library. It was the first weekend. Classes had just started the week before. So there are a lot of very serious, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed students (laughs) in the library studying. But they did have a display there of Lowell Thomas's desk. Lowell Thomas was a I guess a reporter. I don't know that much about him. They, they had a little bit of information about him, but he was associated with Lawrence of Arabia and had met him and did some reporting. So I, I have to read a little bit more about him because Lawrence of Arabia is another person I'd like to learn more about. Hmm. So that was, that was fun to see. And of course I checked out the bookstore Yes, I I bought a book. I love to look, as we both do, we like to go to college bookstores and look at the textbooks and see what everybody's reading. And I did buy a book. It is the fourth edition. This just came out, uh, the fourth edition. It's called Journalism Next by Mark Briggs. And it's written for lay people and journalists on how to use technology in their reporting. Oh, interesting. From social media to video to audio to podcasting. I started flipping through it, and it just seemed like a really neat read. So that is on my to-be-read pile now. That's great. Do we have any upcoming jaunts scheduled? We do. We actually
0: have a joint jaunt. We just got tickets for Gretchen and Elizabeth, who are the sisters who make up the Happier podcast. Nice. They're coming to Providence on November 1st. And we snagged some tickets for that. So that should be really fun. A nice evening out in Providence. Maybe we can get back to our that store, Riff Raff, the bookstore. I would yeah. love to go back there.
1: That'd be great.
0: And then I don't know if you know about Books on Pratt on September 20th from 12:30 to 3:30 there's a the University of Connecticut has a Barnes and Noble down in Hartford it's kind of like a what do you call it a satellite campus i guess mm-hmm. yeah and they're having it's a first time ever i think where they're having 40 local ar- authors they're having music they're having a Harry Potter themed band i cool. mean <laughs> who can miss that not me so and and one of the authors that's going to be there is our buddy gene p moore who we had on a few weeks ago so i'm hoping to get there i you know it's just in downtown hartford so it seems like we should be able to manage that maybe i can if you have time i can get you to that and then on october 5th is the connecticut literary festival Yeah, Real Artways in Hartford. So I'd like to try to get to that as well. And that's an all day event, I think.
1: Yeah, October 5th, Connecticut Literary Fest. I'm looking forward to that.
0: Yeah, and that's just a one day event at Real Artways, which is kind of a cool space in Hartford where they have a movie theater, a really nice theater, and then they have museum space and all sorts of stuff. So I think they're going to have author panels. It'll be really interesting to go to that. What about you?
1: I don't have anything on the books other than those things you just mentioned. Okay. As good. far as I know.
0: <laughs> Until your calendar beeps. That's what happens to me. My calendar makes a sound, and I'm like, uh oh, I forgot uh, something. <laughs> I know.
1: I have a friend coming in. Um, our friend Chris is coming in from Indiana next week. So I know we will be going out and doing some adventuring I'm just not sure where yet yes well we'll be anxious to hear where you end up
0: what about upcoming reads well first and foremost for me I'm going to start free food for millionaires by Min Jin Lee really excited about starting that and then I have one I'm going to be heading on vacation and I have a book I've been holding and waiting to take on vacation which I think sometimes can be a dangerous game. been like under lights in my house, like, ah, here's your vacation book. So hopefully I'm not building it up too much. It's called Ask Again Yes by Mary Beth Keene. And I don't know much about it. I know it's a novel and I think it's an epic family story is probably the best way to say it.
1: All right. What about you? Well, I have a couple. I I still need to get to Louise Penny's new one, A Better Man. I have not gotten to that yet. I know. Like, I I feel like a heretic. (laughs) Yeah. I know. They're going to take away my Louise Penny card if I don't get to that soon. But I just haven't had a ton of reading time. And so I'll be reading A Better Man. But then I also have two that are coming up. Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. This will be a reread for me, but I wanted to read something for Banned Books Week. Nice. Yeah. Uh, that band book band books <laughs> <laughs> Band Books Week always sneaks up on me. I feel like I, it's always here before I know it. So this year I'm proud of myself to be a little bit ahead of the curve. It's actually the week of september twenty second to twenty eighth, and it's a celebration of being able to to read. And be aware that books are banned, that ideas yes. are banned, that people even attempt to ban books. So I will be
0: reading we should Put a list in the show notes, because to me, whenever there is a list of banned
1: books. Right. And well, it's they, always
0: shocking to read over it.
1: Yeah. The American Library Association it keeps a list of the most challenged books. So okay. in America, for the most part, books are usually not banned but books are challenged all the time. And actually Song of Solomon is one of those books. It is on their their list. So Fair 451, I'm going to be doing a buddy read with our friend Allison from Literary Atlanta podcast. I remember reading it in grade school and it was one of those books that I thought, wow, this is so cool that I'm getting to read this book because it felt like a big person's book. And isn't that, wasn't that just recently made into a movie? Yeah, they did another adaptation. There'd been... An adaptation like maybe in the 70s. I remember seeing that. And there there was a newer one too. So I, I hope to watch both of those movies as well. And then another book I have coming up is Ain't Nobody Nobody. There's a wild mm-hmm. boar on the cover. I'm holding yeah. it up for Emily to see. And this is by Heather Harper-Ellett. It's coming out in September. I'm looking forward to this. It's a mystery novel, I should say. That's a great cover. Uh I read the first chapter and it sucked me in. Ooh, that's a good sign. Uh, the guy's dogs corner a wild boar and he slaughters it,
0: which oh, wow. usually
1: I can't handle that kind of stuff. And I was just kind of like, oh, I don't know about this book. But I kept reading and I like the first chapter. I like the voice of the narrator. Hmm. So those are my books coming up. Next is our interview with Mike Branch. Hope you enjoy our conversation with him.
0: Hi, everyone. With us today is Mike Branch. He is the author of, I should say, his most current three books are Raising Wild, Rants from the Hill, How to Cuss in Western. And we are also really thrilled that he participated in the book Cougars, Celebration of National Poetry Month in April of 2018. And we have a lovely recitation of Mike um, reading How to Like It by Stephen Dobbins, also with guest starring his dog, Bo, I should say. (laughs) So we will put a link to the show notes so that you can see Mike in person, kind of, I guess, the way we do it now through video. And we should say that we are in, uh, in not in person together. We are all um, recording on video as well. So welcome, Mike.
2: Thanks for having me. It's good to be here with you guys.
1: And it's great to see you again, Mike. I should let everybody know, Mike and I go way back. Um, I think what, over 20 years, maybe 25 years or so. Mike was my professor at University of Nevada. He was my advisor for my PhD program. And it's great to to be connected with you again in this way, Mike. Mike is a professor of English at the University of Nevada, and he's one of the co-founders of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. So you are one of the foundational critics of eco-criticism, Mike. And I know we're going to talk about that going forward. But if there's anything you'd like to start off with, telling our listeners about yourself that we maybe not didn't include, uh, we'd love to hear.
2: Well, I want to say first that one of the real pleasures of having the opportunity to work with grad students are these lifetime friendships that come out of them. It's teaching is a is a passion sport for me, but people come and people go, and you get a new group all the time. But with graduate students, I think all of my grad students are still friends of mine for for life. So it's nice to be with you again. So I, I guess that's what I wanted to say. Is it's just it's just really good to know that you're doing so well and to have both of our lives and careers loop around so we were able to connect in this way.
0: That's really funny. You know, I've never thought about that, that, you know, I'm the parent of two children and they're adult children now. And one of the things I love about having adult children is seeing where they're heading in their life, you know, what their passions become. And it never occurred to me that what a treasure it must be to be the instructor of grad students, because you don't have to do the heavy lifting of raising them, but you get to interact with them at that point in their lives where they're exploring and learning and you know heading in new directions
2: it really is special and and again it's so different from undergraduate education just because you maintain these relationships for a lifetime and often you know their families and you know the changes they go through over time and i don't know it just uh, it helps to balance out i think that feeling of ephemerality or transience of feeling really connected to people for 16 weeks and then in many cases never seeing them again and you know, you sort of find yourself wondering what path did their lives take. So it's nice that some of you are still part of the story for me. <laughs>
1: Great. Yeah. Here Chris is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, speaking of kids, Mike, your, your essays, so Rants from the Hill and How to Cuss in Western are essays that you wrote uh, originally for High Country News, the newspaper in your area. How did you get started doing that from, you know, academic writing to writing for a popular audience? How did that come about? And speaking of kids, I meant to say, you talk a lot about your two daughters and your Mm -hmm. wife, Erin. And uh, so how did that transition happen?
2: Well, you know, initially what happened was I just found parenting these two little girls so strange and humiliating and interesting (laughs) and inspiring and challenging that I just wanted to capture some of that in stories. And at the time, uh, for about 15 years, we lived in a really remote area of the Western Great Basin Desert. And it was such an unusual and beautiful place to live. And I found parenting such a strange and funny and interesting challenge that really I just wanted to make a little room in my life to record some of the stories, some of the experiences that I was having doing that. And, you know, anybody who's ever had a hobby take over their life will understand what happens next, which is, you know, this kind of work, this kind of creative nonfiction and environmental writing and humor writing became so fascinating to me that little by little, I really have shifted my attention from scholarly writing almost exclusively to telling stories about family and landscape and it's it's really been one of the most exciting sort of rebirths in my life.
0: I had a very specific question that it comes based from a scene in your book Raising Wild. Raising Wild the subtitle of it, I think that's how you say it is Dispatches from a Home in the Wilderness. And so these these stories take place when you are living in that house that you were just describing, and you do such a beautiful job of describing it. I mean, I really felt like I was in this remote place with you, with these young children, and you were living in, it It was a passive solar house that you had built. I think your father designed it, right? And you had built it. Did you build it together? Is that right?
2: Yeah, our whole family worked together on the design of the house, and it took years and years to really find the spot that we wanted for it that would work best for passive solar, or be adjacent to public lands, give us an opportunity for a real wilderness experience. And uh, you know, it meant an awful lot to us to have that be a multi-generational project. But also, one of the things that's really important to me about the experiment that the book *Raising Wild* sort of documents is American literature is full of men running off into the wilderness by themselves. So whether we mm. think of You know, Henry Thoreau going off to Walden Pond, or Huck Finn getting on the raft on the Mississippi, and there's a million other examples, you know, we've sort of celebrated, you know, men in solitude in the wilderness, and we have this whole kind of genre of American literature often called the retreat narrative, you know, men running off to nature, and often the part we don't say is, you know, they're running away from adult responsibility, from jobs and relationships and families and children, So, you know, the experiment of how we lived and the experiment of the book Raising Wild was to say, well, this is still a retreat narrative. I mean, we're retreating to a very remote part of the desert, but what happens if a man, instead of retreating from his family, retreats with his family? And so I I wanted to sort of take that form in American literature, but complicate it, and then doubly complicate it by talking about what it means to be a father of daughters, specifically. You know, why is it that our culture has sort of assumed that wilderness space is masculine space. So I'm, I'm really interested in that, too. How do we make the wilderness a home for our daughters as well as our sons?
0: Right. And so the scene I'm talking about, though, is that you're living. I'm so glad you you painted a more clear picture of what your family was experiencing during this time. And and then one night, you and Aaron put the kids to bed, and you start to smell smoke. And you have this, um, what I pictured to be very elaborate smoke detector system throughout the house that is a little bit like the boy who cried wolf and that it goes off on occasion. So the smoke detector goes off and you look at Aaron and say, oh, I'm sure it's just, you know, that smoke detector that drives us crazy. And you go to turn it off. And then another smoke detector goes off. And all of a sudden you realize, uh oh, this could be for real. And it was for real. Yeah. And what I thought was so I mean, it was so you know, nerve wracking to read this part of the book, because you immediately screamed, Aaron, you know, go get the girls, get them out of the house, but then you stay in the house, which was so upsetting to me as a reader, and start to try to put the fire out. But you know, as a reader that you are in the wilderness, so you're far from the EMTs and the fire trucks and all of that. And I wondered as I was reading it, It spoke to this issue you're talking about, about being a man and raising these two young girls, that you as the man were left in the house to try to save the house and how you felt. And I just wanted you to explore that idea with me because I found it very upsetting. But it's so common, the direction that our genders take in situations.
2: Yeah, you know, I had never thought about that essay in that way. That's really fun and provocative to have you kind of ask it that way. I mean, I I would have to really think to myself, did I you know, did I stay because I thought that was a man's job? I, I don't mm-hmm. think so. I, I think mm-hmm. it was more job number one is to protect your children. Mm-hmm. But, but for me, I felt like job number two was to protect our home. The response time for emergency vehicles is so long out there. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, I shouldn't have stayed in the house. And it was a bad call. So anybody who's listening to this, if you find yourself in a similar situation, you know, this is not an approach I would recommend. It did turn out in the end that that what I did did save the house, but I'm not particularly proud of that because I still think it was the wrong decision to, to stay in the house. I, I think in some ways, the most humbling part of that whole experience was that we lived on the wilderness interface where wildfires are very common and we do all kinds of work to be prepared for wildfire. I won't go into detail, but you know, you have to learn to live with fire in this part of the West. And so we had had many wildfires over the years that had come close to our place, and we were fully prepared for that. But the idea of fire starting in the house, which, of course, you know, many people have uh, right, right. Have, have had this accident befall them. But to me, it seemed like I've done all this work to be prepared for wildfire. And now this thing is coming from this threat is coming from inside my home. Wow. Psychologically, somehow that didn't feel right to me.
1: Mm. Wow. Yeah. It's like horror movies, right? It's coming from inside the house. You don't plan for that. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Well, you do. In this case, you do. You have all of these smoke detectors, but then they, you know, the fact that you had so many false alarms and then suddenly it was the real thing. It reminded me of all those fire drills you have in school, you know, where you're (laughs) hiding in a closet and just having a good time with your friends. But this one was for real. (laughs)
2: Yeah. and, And that's one of the things I really loved about being out there is, you know, you... You hear about rattlesnakes or scorpions or bobcats or mountain lions or blizzards or wildfires or flash floods, right? I mean, this stuff is in the news, but there's something really intense about the visceral reality of being exposed to those things and knowing that you're largely on your own, or at least that your family is on on its own. You can help each other, but um, there's just a lot of situations out there that require... Yeah, I, I just, the, the way you put it is really great, Emily, that there's just something incredibly real about it, that I think we're often, we have lots of uh, layers of mediation between ourselves and the things that potentially threaten us in life. But when you're living out on that interface in the desert, a lot of those mediating factors are gone. And that's part of why it's such, to me, such an exciting and redemptive place to live that, you know, there's there's not much between you and the real world. But you know, that cuts both ways.
1: Right. Well, one of the essays, Mike, I really enjoyed uh, from Rants on the Hill was In Defense of Bibliopedestrianism." So <laughs> talking about living out there with the threats, I remember hiking around Reno and encountering a rattlesnake. And you talk about in this essay about walking along and reading and there's rattlesnakes and, and other dangers out there do you still do that? Do you still walk and read a lot?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I I still have a have a reputation out in the rurals as that eccentric dude who walks around by himself in the middle of the wilderness reading. Yeah, it's a super strange habit. And so people have kind of found this fascinating. It's uh, because it seems bizarre. But to me, you know, these are two of the most important things in my life to read and to walk. These are the things I do with most of each day. And I do think there's a there's a liability to reading while you walk, that there's a certain amount of engagement, sensory engagement with the world that you lose. But also, sometimes I'm just sort of being practical, you know, that I have a certain amount of time. I want to be in the field. I have things that I need to do. And so, yeah, it's kind of Ben Franklin-esque, right, this hyper hyper efficiency. I'm going to enjoy the wilderness and also, you know, read somebody's dissertation chapter. But (laughs) um, but I do like I like that combined experience because. I love the way reading helps you to explore and discover inner worlds and worlds of imagination and memory and fantasy. And I love the way being in the natural world reminds us of these deeper connections we have as a species to place. So for me, reading and experiencing the world uh, through walking have always been really braided in my imagination. So once I started actually doing this, which is, you know, albeit a very strange habit, I've actually found it really rewarding. It's a lot of fun, as weird as it is. It's a lot of fun.
0: I find, though, too, when I move my body and think that it works, the system works better, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, that it actually like the thoughts actually move through my brain somehow a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Do you find that, that you process the information differently as you read and walk?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And there's good scientific evidence, by the way, to support this idea that the way we think and feel is in some ways uh, more efficient, more focused uh, when we walk. I mean, walking is probably the number one thing that our species has evolved to do. Uh, we're not as fast as other animals. We're not as strong as they are. We, we can outwalk pretty much any animal on earth. This is what human beings were built to do. So yeah, I absolutely find when I'm trying to work through a problem, a walk always helps. I, I always imagine physically this sort of idea that you know, the world dumps all this stuff into the top of your head. And then the question is, if you can't filter it out, how do you really survive without going nuts? So I love this idea of like sifting something in in a colander, maybe, that as I walk, all of that stuff sort of sifts. Uh, But the way I actually got started reading and walking speaks to your question directly, Emily, which is people will often ask me when I do readings about my writing process, and I've got different kinds of advice along those lines. But My pattern, because I lived in the desert for so long and I love to walk, is I would sit and compose a draft for however long I could stay focused. Then I would print that out because I'm a better editor in hard copy. And then I would take that with me on a walk. I would walk just long enough to Mm -hmm. edit what I had written. Then I would come back and start writing again. So in some long writing days, I might actually take six or eight walks. They're all very short and they're all editing what I've just written. So I really got that rhythm of writing, walking, writing, walking, writing, walking. But I I absolutely agree. And when I walk, I feel like my focus, my imagination, my ability to plan strategically for things I feel stuck on, uh, I almost really don't think I could do this work without walking.
1: Mm, That's fascinating. I love it. Totally fascinating. The first author we've encountered... Yes, who (laughs) edits walks. I love that. Now, do you ever listen to audiobooks, Mike, or podcasts while you're walking, or do you keep things out of your ears?
2: Yeah, I do. I do sometimes, and I do love the kind of storytelling that podcasts allow us to bring and the kind of work you guys are doing. This is the sort of stuff I love to listen to. I do try to have enough self-discipline to not let sort of a world of engagement with media and a world of engagement with nature encroach on each other too much. I found, for example, that, you know, if I am listening to news, for example, I put on a podcast that involves current events or news as I'm walking, I really do often have this sense of contamination that, you know, Thoreau had this line he would talk about, you know, he walked a tremendous amount every single day. uh, But he has this great line where he says, sometimes I could not shake off the village, by which he means that his body went through the woods, but his mind was still preoccupied with social affairs, basically. So I do find that for walks to be restorative, uh, they often need to be a walk away from the kinds of things that um, sort of fill your head every day. But that said, especially if it isn't news oriented, if it's more sort of intellectual or storytelling or the kind of work you guys do, I I do sometimes enjoy that when I'm outside.
0: Yeah, I have a real love-hate relationship with it myself because I feel like (laughs) There's so many options now and so many things that I want to listen to that, you know, I'm, I find I'm always putting information into my head. And then, you know, you have your work life where you put information into your head and you have your relationships and, you know, there's just all these people in your life you're trying to keep track of. And lately, I, I, too, am an avid walker. And lately, I've just been thinking, you know, go out into the world, take your walk, listen to the birds you know, do some of that, you know, cleansing you're talking about, because it's not as if I don't have a busy enough mind on my own. <laughs> right? right. <laughs> so it's time to just kind of take that in and, you know, process some of my own busy rants. But um, reading is an interesting idea, though. I mean, I'm afraid that I'm such a klutz, I would trip and hurt myself. But I do love the idea of reading something. And I occasionally actually walk in place in my own house, especially in the winter, if, if there's an icy day when I can't get out, and we will read and walk in place. And I do find that those portions of a book I read somehow stay in my mind a little bit more.
2: Yeah, I agree. And and it's also the case that for most people, certainly for me, memories are really associated with place. And this spatial imagination that that we have, it stories the landscape in a really interesting way. So, for example, I tried this experiment during those 15 years I lived out there where every year I would walk at least a thousand miles within a 10 mile radius of my house. And the experiment was kind of, will this get boring, will it get repetitive, or will my sense of place deepen as a result of this? So, in the end, I, you know, I ended up walking, you know, 20 something thousand miles within a 10 mile radius of my house. And that means Day, night, snow, fire, wind, rain, the whole bit. But it also means sometimes you are with one of your parents. Sometimes you're with one of your kids. You're with a friend. Maybe you're taking a walk with somebody who's having a rough time and you're trying to help them out. And I found that every time I would walk that landscape, it would not only be here's this beautiful cliff or beautiful canyon. It would also be other kinds of layers of story like here's where I saw the winter herd of pronghorn antelope. But also layers of story that come from our human relationships, you know. Here's the place where I first had this kind of conversation with my daughter. You know, here's the place where my wife and I, you know, talk through our plan for the next 10 years or, you know, whatever it might be. So I do think that reading can do the same thing, that I often will, I don't know if you guys are like this, but books that mean a lot to me, I can often remember where I read them the first time. Mm -hmm. I was sitting in this library or I was on this trip or I was under this tree you know, well, why is that that these layers of story get bonded in our memory with the places where they happen? I mean, if you like Moby Dick or whatever, who cares where you read it? But the way my mind works, at least, is the stories and the places are always sort of forged together in some way that are inseparable. And to me, that makes both the reading and the walking richer, because there are two sets of stories that are constantly kind of recreating each other in my imagination.
1: Beautifully said. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Mike, I did want to ask you if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what is eco criticism? It is such an important part of your academic work and your more public writing. Can you talk a bit about that?
2: Sure. Well, eco criticism is really just kind of a fancy way to say people who are interested in the environmental implications of literature and, in a broader sense, the environmental humanities in a more general way. So, you know, how do we Express our relationship to nature and the environment through writing or to think of the environmental humanities more broadly through art through music. So really, uh, you know, there's been a tradition in literature to take seriously the interactions between people, but to think of the world in which those interactions occur as setting as sort of backdrop for human drama. So eco-criticism just kind of explores that figure-ground relationship between environment and people and says, you know, um, as Barry Lopez put it, we, we can't know who we are until we know where we are, that our sense of identity is bonded to our sense of place, that our, our humanness is inseparable from the natural environment. So eco-criticism, again, you know, it's just sort of a fancy term for let's look really closely at how the kind of art we produce expresses our relationships to the natural world and to enjoy that and ask what we can learn from it.
1: In your years of studying literature and environment, this might seem like a really obvious question, but with the rise of global warming and uh, and other threats to the environment, has the work that you and other scholars do, has it really expanded a lot or has it gone deeper into certain subjects?
2: I'd say both simultaneously. Um, Ecocriticism has expanded vastly in lots of ways. What kinds of literary genres are examined? What different kinds of global cultural traditions are in play? Ecocriticism was very much an American phenomenon in the beginning. It's now thoroughly internationalized and globalized. And that's really crucial because we have scholars now all over the world who are looking at the relationship between art and environment in their own cultures. And that's allowing us to have lots of different versions of the story of how it is we express our relationship to nature through art, whether that's literature or or other forms of art. So one big change is that it's become much more global. Uh, The other is, fortunately, from my point of view, it's become uh, much more engaged, whether we wanna think of that as politics, activism, whatever word you prefer, but I think the kind of art that expresses emotion is important, but art has always been socially engaged and increasingly i would say environmental writers and eco critics feel like the first order of business is to explore our culture's relationship to problems like biodiversity loss and climate change and toxicity and also uh, various forms of inequity that have to do with race and class we know that um, certain people are more likely to be in communities for example that are close to uh, superfund sites or toxic waste dumps so i think it's really great that we you know we're continuing to study everything from, you know, Shakespeare to whatever you read in your high school English class. Uh, But we're also looking at it as a way to gain a deeper understanding of what our relationship to the natural world is and why in many ways it has sort of gone wrong and needs, needs to be repaired. I think in an era of climate change, it's pretty difficult to imagine sort of art for art's sake. I think we're all using our own techniques to try to nurture a conversation about how to improve our relationship to the natural world
0: yeah I have a friend who's a painter and she's struggling to ask herself some of these very same questions you know it's just a time where you want your art to somehow reflect where we are as a country and see you know how you can help with the with the form that you use for expression so I I completely understand that
2: Yeah. And this reminds me to reconnect to the fire to a friend of mine who's a wonderful environmental writer, a guy named Rick Bass, wrote this piece where he uses the metaphor, you know, in talking about environmental crisis, he uses the metaphor of your house being on fire. And he says, well, if you're a painter and your house catches on fire and you have a paintbrush in one hand and a bucket of water in the other hand, what are you going to do now? You don't have to agree with him, but I, I think that really makes the point. Right you could probably make an incredible painting of your house as it burns to the ground, but that's not what you're going to do, right? You're going to throw the water on it and paint later. Um, So I think a lot of us, uh, a lot of writers and artists, musicians, filmmakers, you know, really struggle with, you know, how do I engage with and express the beauty of the world and simultaneously take seriously my ethical obligation to respond to these kinds of threats, which I, I think are now pretty obvious to all of us.
0: I'm not sure we can say to all of us, but I would like to say that that's true. <laughs> it
2: just came out of my mouth. I realized, yeah, not all of us. That's why I can't listen to the news while I walk. But anyway,
0: I love that your your positivity, Mike, is wonderful. So well, we will embrace that. <laughs> we are sadly are running out of time. If we could just ask you one last question, which some authors are hesitant to answer, may we ask you what you're working on now?
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, Let let me say first that one thing we didn't touch on in our our chat today is uh, humor, the use of humor. And um, one of the things that my recent books have tried to do is use humor to allow people who are uh, really traumatized by the environmental crisis to be able to let off a little bit of that steam through laughing and then come back to some of those problems. So I take pretty seriously the idea that you know, humor is not comic relief. It's another way into talking about the things we really need to deal with. So that's kind of a way to lead up to the fact that my current book project, which like all writers, I am pursuing obsessively, is about jackalopes. Do you know what a jackalope is? I do not. You don't, I bet Chris knows.
1: I do. A jackalope is it's like a rabbit with antlers, right?
2: Exactly. It's a rabbit. <laughs> wow. It's a rabbit with antlers.
1: We're going to have to
0: put a picture of that in the show notes. (laughs)
2: Yes. So there are dimensions to this story that you will not believe. It's really been an incredible journey. I've been traveling around the country interviewing people. And so, yeah, the rabbit with horns, which started out as a hoax in the 1930s, but is really connected to a very interesting phenomenon in nature uh, in which rabbits and hares actually do develop horns as a result of a virus. And so there's a whole story that goes with the way the world's uh, safest and most effective anti-cancer virus was actually derived from the study of horned rabbits. So the book is a long arc from the sort of iconic, funny horned bunny that you would see like over a bar in Wyoming, uh, all the way to this story of actual horned rabbits in nature and how the study of them led to anti-cancer therapies. So it's got everything I love. It's, it's got the American West. It's got humor. It's got science and environment. Uh, and in the end i hope i hope maybe i can help draw attention too to uh, the power of in particular the hpv vaccine and the need for people to really make sure their children are protected so anyway that's what i'm doing now i'm all jackalopes all the time that's what i think about when I <laughs> work in the morning it's what i dream about at night uh, so it'll be a little while on this book but i'm i'm really thrilled to be working on it maybe i can come back when that book comes out
0: oh, we'd love we that my yeah, I bet, I bet your children and your wife are thrilled that you have other people to talk to you about the jackalope at this point in your life. <laughs>
2: yes, well, you know, having a father who is obsessive about whatever he's doing at the moment, I have a kind of full immersion, passionate uh, approach to whatever I'm doing. And I, I think that can be fatiguing to people around me. So maybe maybe I should just talk to you guys every day and take some of the right. pressure. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and we wish you great success with that new project and we would love it if you come back and talk to us about Jackalopes. Absolutely.
2: Let's absolutely plan on it. Uh, This has been really, really fun and thanks to you guys for your work and thanks to all your listeners for caring about books and being part of the conversation.
1: Great. Great. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, Join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.